Chris Creston is producing the program. He's high atop the Creston Towers. We also have uh, Shaggy Dave driving the show at Chorus Key. And I'd like to welcome into the program Dr. Brett Belchetz, who is an ER doctor and 640 Toronto medical expert. Uh, Dr. Brett, it's uh, I really appreciate you sparing some time for us here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I, you know, you're an emergency room physician, so I wanted to reach out to you and ask you this. You've been asked to, along with other emergency room doctors, to ration drugs during the pandemic. Can you get specific as to which ones and why you're being asked to ration them? Yes, there are a number of drugs that we use on a routine basis, uh, mostly for procedural care. And by procedural care, I'm talking about the anesthetic part of, of what we do when we Uh, perform procedures on patients. So it's the drugs that we use to put people to sleep for procedures, to sedate them for procedures. And by procedures, I I don't just mean, you know, when we're doing a surgery, but even just for the procedure of actually putting a a breathing tube down somebody's throat. And the reason why this is a big deal is we all, you know, we've all heard about, you know, question marks about shortages of ventilators and other kinds of equipment. and, And we've all been very aware of how it might compromise our ability to provide care if we don't have things like ventilators. But what I think a lot of people were missing out on is that it doesn't do us a lot of good uh, to have ventilators if we don't have the drugs that we need to go along with the ventilator to be able to safely use that ventilator on a patient. Without these drugs that can make a patient be unconscious or sedated, it's pretty much impossible to actually use the ventilator. So, So this is a big deal. Why is it impossible to use the ventilators? What does the body do? Is it the fact that we're consciously aware that there's a tube down our throat, which would be incredibly uncomfortable? Or is there actually a physical reaction uh, within the body if you're not sedated uh, when you're ventilated? It's both. So being completely awake and aware with a tube down your throat is an incredibly uncomfortable sensation for anybody. And most people who are consciously awake and aware when they have a tube down their throat Unfortunately, the the body's natural defensive reflexes kick in, and the first thing they try to do is tear that tube right out of their throat. That it, it just never really works very well. Uh, the, it, it's almost like you know torturing a human being to have them on, on a ventilator with no sedation. The other thing that's important to note is that when we are ventilating a patient, uh, the ventilation typically is a lot more effective if the patient's lungs themselves aren't fighting the ventilator if they're not breathing in a uncoordinated manner against the ventilator. And so part of the sedation allows us to actually not have that happen. It allows us to not have the patient's own efforts fight against what the ventilator is trying to do. And again, the sedation that the drugs cause allow us to more effectively mechanically ventilate their lungs. So if we have patients who, one, are feeling like they're physically attacked by having this tube down their throat, two, are trying to tear the tube out of their throat, and three, even if we could stop all of that from happening, are, are actively breathing against the ventilator, all of this adds up to a situation that, that's nearly impossible to manage. Are we running out of these uh, drugs, these sedatives, because they're in such high demand elsewhere on the globe, or you know, is there another reason? My understanding is actually not that it's because they're in such high demand. In fact, I would probably guess that we're using less of them overall than we were pre-COVID. And the reason why we're using less is these drugs are very commonly used as part of all of the elective surgeries that have now been canceled. And so none of those are happening. But I think the biggest problem is supply chain disruption. So 
and this is a big lesson we have to take from this entire crisis. Many of these drugs, so propofol would be one that I think about a lot, which is the drug that we use to initially put people to sleep when we first take them into the operating room or when we put a breathing tube down their throat. My understanding is that much of the supply of that drug is not manufactured here, comes from overseas uh, sources of supply. Specifically, I, I understand much of it does come from places like China. And so when we're in a place where all of a sudden the ability to effectively get drugs from overseas countries that are far away, when when all of the mechanisms of international trade are breaking down, it puts us in a very vulnerable place. So I think one of the big lessons here is that we as a country, and I think every country needs to think about this, for vitally important drugs, we need to have domestic sources of supply to, to tide us over in times of crisis. Dr. Belchatz, so you've been asked to conserve. You're not using these. Is there a replacement that you use, if any? There are other drugs. Uh, You know, one of the things that first, so first of all, one of the things that we're doing is for many procedures where we don't necessarily have to put somebody to sleep. So I'll I'll give you an example, Uh, something like a shoulder dislocation, um, which ordinarily I would use a, a little bit of that drug that I spoke about, propofol, and I would quickly fix the shoulder. And it's very easy for me to do when I put the patient to sleep with propofol. Uh, there are other techniques where we can where we can calm the patient down, where we can inject local anesthetic and use a variety of other methods to actually avoid using general anesthesia altogether. So we've been encouraged for many procedures, and this is doable to, to actually use local anesthesia and a variety of other techniques rather than putting patients to sleep. So that helps. In the setting of actually intubating a patient, so intubating is when we put a breathing tube down, there are other drug cocktails we can use so that we don't rely exclusively on one. So, for instance, you know, there are other drugs such as something called ketamine. Uh, Ketamine, you may have heard of before. Sometimes it's used as a drug of abuse. It's often veterinary settings. Um, It's a very, very effective sedative drug for procedures. Uh, Not ideal for this kind of thing, but certainly is something that we can use. And then there's a variety of other sedative agents. So the idea right now is to use alternative medications so we don't completely run out of any of them. However, you know, we're already going down a pathway where when we're using drugs that are less uh, effective than, you know, the first line treatment, when we're using drugs that our physicians are less comfortable and less practiced with using, the minute you go down that path, you're going to a place where outcomes will generally start to be worse as a result of this. So certainly I look at this as significant a crisis as us running out of ventilators. This is quite a big deal. Wow. Um, I want to turn our attention to Tom Hanks, one of the most recognizable COVID-19 survivors. He had this to say earlier this week. Have a listen. We uh, just found out that we do carry the antibodies. Um, Ooh. Wait, so can we harvest your body? Can we harvest your blood? Yes. Have you oh. been approached? We we not only been approached, we have said, uh, do you want our blood? Can we give plasma? And in fact, we will be giving it now to the places that hope to work on what I would like to call the Hank scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. I love that. Um, obviously, we want a vaccine, but, you know, and it, it's not a Hank scene. It's it's, it's actually a, a treatment. Researchers at the University of Toronto are playing a leading role in a national effort to study the efficacy of using blood plasma from recovered COVID-19 patients as a treatment. And this is actually an old concept, but I would love for you to break this down for us and how it works. And if you could start off with what what blood plasma actually is. Mm -hmm. So what you're looking at is you are taking the blood of somebody who has been infected with a disease. And this is actually quite an old concept in medicine. This is one of the oldest ideas that we have, you know, going back, you know, over probably about 100 years that we've had this idea for treating illness. And it actually does work. 
um, what you do is you look at somebody who's recovered from an illness and you take their blood and you essentially remove all of the elements of the blood that you don't want from the blood. So things like the red blood cells and the white blood cells and all of it that makes it blood. And you try to leave behind only those things that you want, which are uh, basically the antibodies uh, that give the immune response. And, you know, in some of the plasma treatments, you actually retain some of the plasma fluids. And in others, you actually try to only have the antibodies themselves isolated. So the idea being you're, you're trying to get rid of all of the things that we worry about in a blood transfusion that could cause infection and other sorts of things and, and could cause an immune response where we reject in a, a transfusion. And you're trying to only have those parts that you're interested that you can then transfuse into another patient. So we take that, we take that mixture, which is basically all, all bodily fluid with antibodies inside of it, and then we inject it into somebody who is suffering from this illness. And the idea being that the patient that we're giving this plasma treatment to is somebody who it has not been able to mount a sufficient antibody response to fight the illness. And we infuse them with, with literally enormous numbers of antibodies from this other person who has recovered. And as a result, we give a huge boost to that person's immune system and allow them to now fight off the illness. And in fact, it has seemed to have worked for a number of illnesses in the past, as I mentioned. It does seem in early research to be making a difference in COVID patients, but we haven't had the large systematic trials to prove it out on a very, very significant basis. The other thing that's important to note about this treatment, it is quite limited by the fact that there just aren't that many patients out there yet who have these antibodies. So the ability to mm-hmm. harvest the plasma is limited. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, who the, the question mark on who gets the blood plasma would be an interesting uh a dilemma that people would have to face like how do you pick and choose and then the other uh the other point is is this has to be early treatment apparently you you should get it at the beginning of the the uh the patient's uh battle with COVID-19 well that's that's what we're understanding what we have seen is that the plasma does seem to be more effective when administered early versus later but then you know to your point around who gets it one of the things that we like to think about when we have treatments that are very limited in quantity but seem to be somewhat effective is we want to save them for the sickest people. But unfortunately, with COVID, it's often not early in the illness that we figure out who the sickest people are. So it creates mm-hmm. a little bit of a dilemma in terms of who we would actually use this on. Do we use this on people who seem well but are at risk to prevent them from getting sicker? Or do we potentially lose some of the efficacy of the treatment by waiting until later in the disease till we see that they're really sick? And we don't really have the answer on that right now as an overall guidepost as to how to use this. All right. So I have about a minute left and I want to ask you this. Yesterday, Apotex, Canada's largest and the only manufacturer of hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine in, in the country, uh, announced a donation of two million dosages of the medication to the federal government to determine if they could use it in treating COVID-19. This week, the study of coronavirus patients in a U.S. government run hospital for military vets found that uh, there were more deaths among those that were treated with the drug than those who had standard care. Why is hope still being pinned on this drug? And and what does it really say about our fight against COVID-19? I think you're asking the right question. Why are we pinning hopes on this drug when, when you know, all indications are that it does not work? I, I, to be honest, I think there's been a lot of false hope around this particular one. I think it's one that, you know, there was some thought it could make a difference, but clearly it's actually a very dangerous drug combination that is not helping and perhaps is harming more than helping. So I think we need to take a step back from this one. I think there are far more 
promising therapies, specifically some of the antiviral drugs that were developed to fight Ebola seem to be more promising. Some of the plasma therapies that we've just discussed, I think we need to take the resources that might be getting wasted on hydroxychloroquine and we need to transfer them over to some of the more promising therapies to get them pushed ahead on a more wide basis and a faster basis. Dr. Belchetz, thanks so much for joining us. I always appreciate your time and have a safe weekend. Thank you. You as well. Take care.